You know, we all have people in our extended families that we're not exactly proud of, don't we? Or maybe you're that person. But, <laughs> but we have those people and we love them and we're glad they live in another state, right? But uh, we do have those people, as we've said before. When you start shaking your family tree, you don't know what's going to fall out. And yet, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you see that we all, even though we all have family members that need an explanation, Jesus had some that need an explanation also. You know, I have some very colorful uh, characters in my extended family. If we were recording this, I could entertain you for the rest of the night. They put the fun in dysfunctional. Now, Jesus' family was no different. There were criminals, there were prostitutes, there were murderers, and there were in-laws having to get married. And interestingly enough, he is most closely associated with the most dysfunctional of all. A guy who makes your most embarrassing relative look like a saint. He told a lie that resulted in the death of 85 priests. He had an affair with his friend's wife and then arranged his death to cover her pregnancy. He wouldn't discipline his own son even after a rape. We read in Matthew's Christmas story at the very beginning, as he begins with the genealogy of Jesus, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and it goes on down in verse 6, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew goes out of his way to point out David's failure. You know, why not David the warrior or David the great fundraiser or David the, the psalmist? Why draw our attention to this humongous indiscretion. As we've seen, as we've looked at some of Jesus's other relatives from his past, it's because Matthew knows that that's part of the story and not just part of the story. It's the point of the story. You know, David's story begins a thousand years before Jesus is even born, whenever Saul wasn't working out as king, and then God winds up selecting David to follow. And David eventually becomes king. He desires to build a temple, and God sends uh, the prophet Nathan to David with a message. And he says, you can't build it because you have too much blood on your hands. But... And then God makes a promise. We find this promise in 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter, 
beginning with the eighth verse. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. I'm curious, how many of you had heard of King David before today? Let's see your hands. If you'd ever, is there anybody, this is the first time you've heard of King David? Let's see your hands. That's what I thought. Okay, God kept his promise, didn't he? 3,000 years have gone by and everybody still knows who King David is. 3,000 years. Matthew is making a point. The passage goes on. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This was an unconditional promise. And the Jews understood this to mean that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. But David gave God good reason to retract his promise, didn't he? Matthew makes sure we all remember that. Four chapters later, David decides to stay home from war and he goes out on his roof and he sees one of his officer's wives bathing. He calls her to his house. She conceives. And so David, in order to cover up his transgression, in order to cover it up, he calls Uriah from the battlefield, her husband, and he gets him drunk. And he tries to then get him to go home to his wife and Uriah won't go. Instead, he sleeps outside the king's door to the king's exasperation because, you see, Uriah didn't want to be disloyal to his troops. And he said, how can I sleep in pleasure while my guys are out there having it so rough? David tried it a second time to no avail. So finally, in complete exasperation, he sends Uriah back to the front lines and he sends a message to his general Joab, and he tells Joab to uh, put Uriah in front of the battle in the middle of the thickest and fiercest part. And whenever it's going the fiercest, then withdraw all the troops but Uriah. They did that, and Uriah 
was killed. The scripture says this in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, the 27th verse. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Nathan shows up, the prophet, and says, you will pay dearly for what you have done. And he did. Now, David sincerely repented, and he repented not of a mistake. He repented of a sin. So many people want to call sins mistakes today. You don't make a mistake when you sin. It is a sin. And he said, I have sinned. Well, the baby died. His family experienced rape, incest, murder, and betrayal. His favorite son killed his oldest son. And then his general disobeyed and killed the favorite son. There were generations of consequences for David's sin. But though God's discipline was brutal, his promise was eternal. David's, this is the, what I'm getting at, David's inconsistent behavior did not override God's unconditional promise. So 990 years later, a carpenter named Joseph made his way to a little place called Bethlehem, the city of David. And everyone had to return to their hometown to be counted. And it says there in the city of David, the great grandson times 28 of David was born because God keeps his promises. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, according to the promise of God to a man who wasn't very good at keeping his end of the bargain. You know, Matthew had to pause his audience here as they're reading through this genealogy because you see, he was about to tell the story of a new and unconditional promise. Not between David and God, but between mankind and God. A promise sealed in blood, but only the blood of one party because it was a promise, not a contract. In contracts, both people have deals to keep. This was a promise, not a contract. The good news is you have been invited to step into a relationship with God that's governed by an unconditional promise and is characterized by grace and forgiveness. A relationship where you don't have to negotiate your sin. You are forgiven. Before you even come to him to receive his forgiveness, he has already purchased it. He's already made the way. A relationship where your inconsistency and lack of follow-through does not determine your acceptability. You are accepted. Just as God made a promise to David in spite of David, I want you to hear this. 
God has made a promise to you in spite of you. That's the best of news that I could ever hear. And I rejoice at it. I think the angel said it best of all. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That includes you. That includes you. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It says that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, I want you to notice this. God can only promise peace if the obstacle to peace has been removed. That's a part of the promise. And so you're invited to approach God from the platform of what he has done for you, not the platform of what you have done or have not done for him. Like David, your sin may bring consequences, but never separation. That's the promise. That's the promise of Christmas. But you will never experience the promise, the peace between you and God that he desires so strongly that he's gone to a whole lot of trouble and that we celebrate this night. You'll never experience that peace as long as you are negotiating terms with him or trying to negotiate with him. Well, God, I haven't, but I will. Well, Lord, from here on out, I'm going to be better. I'm going to be different. I couldn't help it, but I'll try not to next time. That's not the platform that you stand on before God. You don't stand before him on the platform of, well, God, I have done this and I have done this. And you don't stand him on the platform of, I'm sorry, I haven't done this. I'm sorry, I haven't done that. This is the night we remember the gift. A gift that he wants each one of us to have. A gift isn't something you negotiate about. A gift is something that's offered and then received. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He came to forgive and to accept, not to negotiate. I want to invite you tonight that maybe if you've been waiting till maybe you felt like maybe you'd been good enough to put that aside. If you feel like there's something in your life that's been keeping you from God, understand that is the point of the Christmas story. If it was because of what you did, he wouldn't have to come. But he did. And he came because he cares for you. And this night, he offers every one of us anew a gift. I encourage you to receive it. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
in the Holy Spirit. Amen.